Hello, everybody, and welcome back to All Opinions, No F***s. This is Preston. And Brennan. And today we have a very special guest. Very special. Dr. Ross. Hello, everybody. All right, so, Dr. Ross, let's start off. You are in a rock band. I am. What's the name of this rock band? Lifelike. Lifelike. Uh, I think that's a really cool name. What kind of, uh, or what, what, what's the origin of that name? Well, when we f- were forming the band back in, oh, I guess it was 2000, well, 2004, we were, we were a four-piece band. Two of the guys had to move to Pennsylvania for work. Okay. So we got a new drummer, so we are going to rebrand the band, rename it. And so our first choice was like to pick something from Seinfeld. <laughs> and so we wanted to call ourselves Spongeworthy. <laughs> and so it's like okay let's start with Spongeworthy you google it there's already like six bands named Spongeworthy <laughs> of course <laughs> so, okay how about the Soup Nazis okay there's that too Man Hands uh, the, the, the Close Talkers Man's Ear the, uh, so basically all of the really cool Seinfeld references had been raided taken everybody had web addresses and so we were kind of at a loss, and it's like, well, I said, well, you know, we're kind of lifelike. They're like, what did you just say? I said, well, you know, we're kind of lifelike. You know, they're like, hey, that's a great name. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right. So I ended up not having anything to do with Seinfeld. Yep, it's great. I like it. Uh, what kind of music do you guys play? Uh, we play a variety of rock covers from, oh gosh, the '50s to now. Cool. We've, we've got, I think, close to 400 songs on our list. Holy shit! That's impressive. Well, you know. Brandon, you've been to gigs. We our our claim to fame is we will play four to six hours and we don't break. Damn. Because we take turns singing. Okay. And so, it's all about the psychology of bar bands. I'll explain the psychology of bar bands. Please. It boils down to one woman. No, one word, <laughs> and that's women. Okay, and let me explain that. Okay. See, when you're playing in a bar band. Typically, there's crowds of women that come in, you know, in groups, you know, bachelorette parties, you know, just women out for girls' night. What do they want to do when they're just out in a group of women? Dance. Yeah, dance. So, the key is to play music that you can tolerate as a musician that (laughs) people can dance to. Okay, so the psychology of that is if groups of women come in and hear music they can dance to, they'll stick around. They'll buy drinks. Guys will come in and say, hey, there's ladies here. This is pretty cool. Let's, you know, stay here. And they'll, you know, if they're single women, they'll interact with them, whatever. But the thing is, where most bands fail is when you take a break, you lose the crowd. Yeah, true. True. And so if you can keep the crowd there, more people will stay drinking. The bar makes more money. And the way that many bands, well, many bars are paying bands these days is the European model, where the band gets paid a cut of the bar. Mm. Oh wow! And okay. th- that was my enlightenment back in what 1988 when I first went, no, 89 when I first went to Belgium. You know, I'd been playing in bands since I was 15, and it was typically you either got paid a, a you know a, a guarantee or you had to charge cover at the door. Right. Yeah, that's what I always thought how they made money. Yeah, and so the thing is, when I went to Belgium for the first time, I was in a pub, and there was a band playing. And on the uh, drink board, there were two prices for the, for the drinks, a red and a black price. Huh. And the red price was higher. I'm like, well, why is the red price higher? They're like, well, that's how much the drinks are when the band is playing. And oh, the shit. band would get the differential between the red and the black. Oh. Brilliant. So they got paid off the bar. So 
the more the bar is selling, and if you're getting a cut, the more you will make if you keep people there. Right. And so the psychology of it is, okay, if right. you keep the women there and they're happy and they're drinking, guys will come in and you're creating this harmonious atmosphere where everybody is sticking around, everybody is dancing and having a good time, the bar's happy, and when they're happy, you know, they keep on booking you. Yep, yeah. for sure. Right. It's economics. Brilliant. True, but is it also being in a band, wanting to play music you want to play? So is that a conversation amongst the band? Like, I hate this song. Oh, absolutely. But the, but the audience loves absolutely. it. Absolutely. For years. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll give you a perfect example. Journey. Sure. I am not a Journey fan. Tyler's no? going to love that. No, not a Journey fan. <laughs> And it, stop. <laughs> okay, so whenever somebody who's a, not a musician starts sure. to sing, it's oh, like, yeah. who sings that song? That's right. Who, who sings that song? Uh, me. No, no, who sang that I song? I know the joke. No, but who sang, no, who sang it? Let's keep it that way. <laughs> he wasn't gonna, he wasn't I know the joke because I've heard that a billion times yeah. to me. Right. And so... Because <laughs> I'm not a singer. Okay. Uh, and how. Okay, so, so the thing is, we kept on getting requests, play some Journey, play some Journey, play yeah. some Journey. And, you know, when people are highly socially lubricated, you know, <laughs> number one, their hearing goes. Number two, their their sense of cognitive processing also fails. And it's like, no, we're not playing any Journey. Play some Journey. We're not playing any Journey. Play some Journey. And so one night it was at the, the what is now the saddle bar. It used to be the Surf and Saddle. In, in Solana Beach, it was packed one night. It was a Friday night during race season, so it just gets packed. Uh-huh. And this group of people were just persistent. Play some Journey, play some Journey. And I got up to the mic, and in my typical manner, I said, okay, go check the surface temperature of hell. If it's 32 degrees, that's when we play some Journey. <laughs> That was not a good PR move at the uh, moment, but it's like, you know, here's the deal. We don't play it. We're not going to play it. But we just kept on getting hammered, and this was like over a couple of years. <laughs> a couple of years. And so finally, I was right. I was in the middle of writing my dissertation, and, um, I, you know, when you're doing your dissertation, you have to do a lot of lit review, literature reviews. You have to read articles. So I was literally reading thousands of pages of articles like every week and so what i would do is you know when you're reading you can highlight and you know your your class you're putting your articles in piles for my subject matter it's kind of semi you know you can semi multitask and so you know i had the tv on and um you know flipped the channels i was like oh caddyshack is on okay i'll leave it on caddyshack and if you remember in caddyshack there's a scene when they're on the golf course and Rodney Dangerfield has got this, you know, jacked up um, golf bag, and it's got a boom box in it. And he goes, hey, let's play some music. And so he turns it on, and any way you want it, my journey comes on. <laughs> and I stopped. I'm like, okay, if it's good enough for Rodney, I think I can stomach that. So we talked about it as a band, and it's like, how about any way you want it? It's, you know, it's Journey, it's in Caddyshack, Rodney was into it. So that was like the deal we made with the devil for, to play Journey. All right. It's 32 so. degrees down here. Uh. <laughs> yeah, eight, yeah, 32 degrees. I hell, guess it's yeah. time. Rodney yeah. turned on the AC. Apparently. No respect, no respect. Yeah, yeah. and so, <clears throat> but that, you know, that's the thing you do. 
<coughs> talk about as you know in a band is what you will and won't play. Yeah, all right. And despite the fact that there's three guys up there now, mind you, you know we do play songs by female singers because we we love all types of music. So we play stuff by the Pretenders, Joan Jett. Blondie, no doubt. Wow, wow. Well, we're, we were working on some no oh, doubt. Interesting. But the thing is, it's like once we were playing this Fourth of July gig, and someone says, "Can you guys play some Christina Aguilera?" And I was like, <laughs> "No, we cannot." There's no genies around here. No, no, no that will not be happening. <laughs> but Ross, weren't you not feeling yourself tonight <laughs> or that night? Anyway, that's another Christina Aguilera song. I know. <laughs> No, I was beautiful no matter what they said. <laughs> as long nothing as they, can bring me down. As long as they rub you the right way. That's right. Because <laughs> you've been in bands since, like you said, your teenage years, right? So 15, 1975. What instrument did you learn first? Drums. Drums? Well, I was a, classic, I was a classically trained vocalist. Oh, shit. Okay. And so I had sung in a choir, and I had sung in Lincoln Center in Carnegie Hall by the time I was, what, nine years Holy old. Holy shit. Because I was pretty gifted. I was a prodigy. Because I, I could read music, I had perfect pitch, and I could sing. Then I got a series of really bad infections. Oh, tonsillitis, oh. strep, and it destroyed my voice. Wow. wow. And so I went from being a prodigy to just being kind of ordinary. What age was this? Uh, Ten. Oh, damn. So, right right when you were getting to your stride. Yep. That sucks. So, um, that's when, you know, I just was, you know, I wasn't getting solos or anything anymore because I just couldn't do it like, like you know, you, I used to. And so I started playing drums. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did your parents push music on you or did you no, no, go no, to no. music yourself? No, no, no. I always... In, Let's see. My my dad was art was an artist. He he did a lot of pen sketches, pencil sketches, painting, and my mom sang in the choir. That's how she got me introduced into that choir. My dad's musical taste was more oh gosh, like Sinatra, Rat Pack kind of stuff. My mom was a hippie. Okay. Yeah, my mom was a hippie. All right. So she's like, you can choose what you want, but you might want to listen to this stuff Right. And so, um, so I was listening to. Okay, so like for example, in second grade, um, Christmas party. You know, everybody's bringing in their little forty fives of like you know, yummy, 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 and all this. For our younger listeners, forty yes. fives are old school, <laughs> old school records, old school singles. <laughs> instead of instead of downloading a single song off of iTunes right. or off of Spotify, you had to buy the song on a very. It was a yeah. seven and a half inch record, I think it was. This was before vinyls. Getting songs on vinyl was cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so um, I came into the Christmas party, and I had. Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix? I had The Doors first album. I had Disraeli Gears by Cream. And so I had all this rock stuff. And there was only one other person in the class that had the same stuff, Ellen DeCaro. So I was like, oh, you listen to The Doors too? Yeah, yeah. And so we kind of bonded over that. And, and so in second grade toward the end of the year, we all had to get up and read a poem in front of the class and talk, you know, talk about it. Okay. And everybody's picking these little... Kitty poems. Uh-oh. And of Uh-oh. course, I get up there and go, this is the end. 
my only friend the end and then i started to go in and then that we had a lay teacher not a, a but then she started she said oh, no that mr depend that's it that's it you know <laughs> I, you know i got the hook and stuff and then my mom was picking us up from school at the time because she wasn't working at the time and she goes well mrs depend i need to talk to you about your son she's like well what did he do well his choice of poem to present to the class was just totally inappropriate. She's like, well, Ross, what did you pick? And I said, well, the end by the door. She goes, well, that's a cool one. <laughs> she goes, you approve? She's like, well, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, it's not appropriate for second grade. Well, maybe not appropriate for all second graders, but... <laughs> there's this one girl. <laughs> yeah, there's this one girl that likes it, so, you know. Well, it's funny because uh, I just gave uh, Preston the backstory about the Roxy in L.A. because he just went to the Roxy the first time Tuesday night. Yeah. Oh, really? So I yeah. told him that's where they all played. Jim Morrison played there, the Doors played there. It's a yeah. big venue. Yeah, I was just there uh, two weeks ago. Oh, shit, yeah. Good cool. Well, Who did you see there? Um, It was the 40th anniversary of the release of the clashes london calling so they oh. had like this all-star band like play cool all the songs so like D jacob dylan from the wallflowers did oh, some shit. songs um duff mckagan from guns and roses did some songs with them oh, damn. uh wayne kramer who was in mc5 played a couple of songs so it was, it was pretty cool that's right that's awesome yeah i went and saw some awesome band that no one knows about outside or inside the u.s but I think they're going to be huge, so it was awesome to see them for their first show in the Who U.S. Um, Siamese. Have, have you heard of them? Out. have to check it out. Uh, yeah, they're awesome. It's so good. So you got the backstory. Yeah, Not so, okay. Now. Yeah, yeah, so um, you, do you play anything else other than drums? Oh, I started out on drums. Yeah, you said you started out on drums, And yeah. then, um, after lugging around drums for a couple of years. It's <laughs> a waste of time. And then starting to, like, listen to Hendrix and... Clapton and Jimmy Page. It's like, and then I started okay. to see videos of Jimi Hendrix. It's like, nah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yep. And so um, I lobbied to my mom and said, I really want to learn how to play guitar. She's like, okay, I'll take that into consideration. <laughs> and so for Christmas 1972, of course, you know, Jimi Hendrix played a Stratocaster through this Marshall stack, and I'm like, yeah. And Jimi Hendrix just, just died in 1971. Is, is the Stratocaster the guitar from Wayne's World? Mm, I don't know. He used, like, I think a Jackson or something. You know like the that. one that he's, like, always oh, salivating over? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think okay. it might have been. That's about all I know about guitars. But anyway, the Strat is what Jimi Hendrix played. Okay. So this is the, I'm thinking of a Strat or a Les Paul, like Jimmy Page played. That's what's going through my head. All right. And you know, and so there's this there's this wrapped box under the Christmas tree. Boy. Bless my mother's heart. And I open it up, and it's this. Okay, I'm left-handed, so it's this right-handed classical <laughs> guitar. <laughs> and I'm like, Ma, where does it plug in? She's like, well, it doesn't plug in. <laughs> well, it's right-handed. She says, Well, you're just gonna have to deal with it. I mean, left-handed guitars were not easily available back sure. then and if they if you they were always a custom order and they were like way oh, expensive damn. whereas now it's pretty easy to get a left-handed guitar and most cases there's not a price differential because everything is you know just been yeah. manufactured that way uh, thanks but, ned flanders yeah, yeah really the, yep, the, <laughs> the left leftorium leftorium <laughs> highly ho neighbor and so um and so she's like well you're just gonna have to deal with it and i'm like well when do I get lessons? She's like, well, here's the thing. You know, you're stopping drums. You want to play guitar. 
So, got you some books. If you, you know, teach yourself the basics for two years, then you can start having lessons when you're in high school. Damn. It's like, okay. How do you get instant gratification with that one? Oh, God. Well, you know, there's a classical guitar. It's got nylon strings. The neck is like twice the size of a baseball bat. And so... And and you're like... The handle or the thick end? I'm assuming the thick end. (laughs) And so um, it was not rock and roll. It's like there's just no way you can pull off being cool with a classical guitar back then. Just, Just wasn't happening. And so I stuck with it for two years. And then, uh, yeah, Christmas, my freshman year of high school, I got my first electric guitar and my first amp. So I have to ask, did you play right-handed or did you play upside down? Still play right-handed. Okay. And actually it was a little bit easier to learn because you're doing a lot of the difficult work on the fretboard with your your left hand. Ah, That actually makes sense. And so I was picking up guitar easier than most of my friends in high school who were playing right-handed. That's interesting. I never would have thought of that. <laughs> there you go. Life hack, people. <laughs> For all you Southpaws out there, learn to play guitar. It'll right. definitely get you laid. Well, Did it get you laid? Really? Oh, uh, really? Not even in high school after you got an electric? No. Oh, damn. No, I was a stick boy in high Isn't school. Isn't that the main reason to play guitar? Well, it's a good reason, but <laughs> not the reason I chose. Uh, that's probably for the best. <laughs> not the reason I chose. But as a musician, you do de- get to date up the food chain. That is, that is an added benefit. You add a couple points to your uh, to your key demo. Okay, got yeah. it. Interesting. <laughs> so where'd you go from there? So you, if I remember correctly, you grew, grew up in Jersey, correct? I did. Yeah. Ah, okay. So he's not a West Coast kid. Yeah. No, but um, that was actually one of my main questions. So yeah, curious. but but as far as music goes, so then um, I started to learn how to play harmonica. My mom gave oh. me a mandolin for my 16th birthday. A mandolin. And huh. I'm like, why did you get me a mandolin? She goes, well, it might be cool to learn how to play. Led Zeppelin uses it on a couple of their songs. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. He's in a Battle of Evermore. Um, That's like so, a old school medieval guitar type well, thing, right? Well, it's it's a, it's a, it's a Euro, I think it's a European instrument, but it's it's eight string. Um, huh. It's used in bluegrass and everything, okay. but it, you know, but it's used in a lot of traditional Celtic music and oh, things of yeah. that nature. Yeah. And if you listen to um, Led Zeppelin, you know, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, they use it on uh, like Battle of Evermore. I think. I think going to California has some mandolin, but Battle of Evermore is the main one that has all the mandolin stuff going on. Oh, okay. On Led Zeppelin Four. I never knew that a mandolin was a mainstream rock and mainstream rock instrument. Well, and then um, in more recent years, like um, like REM, losing my religion. You know, they I fucking they, love that song. Well, that's mandolin right there. Oh. The whole intro and everything, and the da 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 da, and the bridge. That's oh, all mandolin. I had no idea. All right, there you go. I, apparently, I love the mandolin. There you go. Is it mandolin or mandolin? Mandolin? Anyway. All right, so you play a bunch of instruments yeah, then. Yeah, I play bass, and then in college I took piano lessons. So, Did reading, being able to read music make it much easier to learn instruments, or is it two separate things? Well, learning how to read music gives you a common framework for understanding, a common context, just like knowing how to read a book in English allows you to go across disciplines, right? It doesn't matter if gotcha. you're learning English literature, doesn't matter if you're learning chemistry, the fact that you know how to read the lexicon 
allows right. you to get the knowledge. Same thing with music. If you can read treble clef, bass clef, then you know what the notes should sound like. Oh, uh, okay. And so you know what should be played. Now, as far as instruments themselves, I mean, playing a stringed instrument is way more different than playing a brass instrument. Right. Okay. Is uh, playing... So the, the mandolin has eight strings, regular guitar has six, and then a bass has four. Mm -hmm. Is that quite different, or was that all pretty, pretty much the same? Okay, so now we're getting into music theory. Okay, so the guitar has six strings, right? Yeah. Well, the bass has four, and the, the, the notes on the four strings of the bass are the same notes as the bottom four strings of the guitar, but they're oh. an octave lower. Okay. Now, so... mandolin, the strings are... There's eight strings, but they're tuned in unison. Unison. Which basically means they're the same note. Just the octave, octaves different? Um, or... some, if I'm not mistaken, the thinner strings are unison, the thicker strings are octave, if I, if I oh. remember correctly. That's okay. interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, so I don't know much about num about music theory, but okay. I think it could be that they're all unison. I can't remember, but but anyway, it's just four strings, but they're tuned. The mandolin is tuned differently. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Right. So during this time in high school, you were learning to play instruments. When did you start diving into trying to write music, lyrically and or oh my goodness, musically? Did you start that early on? Yeah, I started fiddling around when I was about. <clears throat> 14, 15. Yeah. Okay. Did you write the music first or the lyric first? Ooh, good one. I was just listening to Billy Joel. Billy Joel, being from Long Island, New York, you know, he I... always writes the music first, then puts the lyric in after. Well, you see, here's the which thing. Which is unique, apparently. Oh. Yeah, you see, here's the thing. It's like, I always kept, and I still do, keep little journals around. Well, you know, now that we have phones, it's like, you'll think of a phrase Mm -hmm. Musical or, or like a text? lyric? So, okay, you'll th you know you'll think of a phrase and it's like, ooh, that's a good one, and you'll squirrel it away, and then you can use it like in a song someplace, or you might right. build a song around it. Okay. Whereas you know, if I'm just practicing guitar, I might come up with a good lick and then I record it. Right. Then you start to look at your your catalog. You start to look uh, at all of your little your snippets there. And it's like, oh, okay, would that piece of lyric work in the context of this riff and this chord progression? Gotcha. And then you build. There's there's some songs I've written all the music like you know first and then figured out a so, you know lyrics to go after it. A couple of songs I I wrote all the lyrics because it, you know I just had this meter and this idea in mind. And then it's like okay melodically what should I do with this? Okay. What do I want it to sound like? What's the story I want to tell? Right. How do I want to tell it dynamically? Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So do you think that that's pretty common, or do you? In writing songs, you have no idea? You know, songwriters approach things different ways. I mean, most songwriters will tell you, um, you know, they typically have journals where they right, come yeah. up with lyrics. I think a lot of guitar players will say that the lick typically comes first, the riff comes first, and then I work lyrics around it. Right. Some people are just lyricists, like Bernie Taupin. Okay. Elton John, Bernie Taupin, they've been a writing team for... well. Toppin just wrote lyrics, mm -hmm. and then he'd give Elton John the lyrics and say, hey, can you come up with music for this? Oh. Okay, smart. Yeah. That's the way that they wrote songs. All right. Mm -hmm. right. And then sometimes you'll write lyrics and you, have nothing, you, you don't know where they fit. Okay, so a famous example of this is, okay, Hard Day's Night by the Beatles, right? Uh -huh. Good song. Okay. 
So there's a part, okay, the, the, John is singing, the, it's been a hard day. Okay, then there's a different part. When I'm home, that's Paul singing. Well, the thing is, Lennon had that main thing, and you know they were working it out, and they're like, well, we need like a bridge or something. And I don't know if I've got a bridge, and Paul's like, well, I've got this thing I've been working on. I can't do anything with it. What do you think of it? So the when I'm home, the part that Paul's singing, is a piece of a song he couldn't do anything with, so uh, they, they put it together. Interesting. It's a Frankenstein. All yeah. Right, cool. Uh, so, and so the thing is with Lennon and McCartney, a lot of times, if you hear Lennon singing it, he primarily wrote it. If McCartney's singing it, he primarily wrote it. But there's songs that they, they did that with, where they, they had pieces that they just melded together. Oh, interesting. Speaking of that, who do, you, who do you admire from a writing and a perspective on songs? Who do you like? You, obviously, you mentioned the Beatles, you, Jimmy Page. Did you like The Boss? He, okay. was, he was of, the air, of your air, yeah. of your region. Yeah, Springsteen, yep. Yeah. Um, um, but from a writing perspective, do you, is there people you really look towards in your early days of learning how to write songs? Did you try to emulate, model after... Hmm. Well, see, the thing is, there's different contexts for that. Mm -hmm. um, there's context of, okay, I want to write a song <clears throat> that, you know, just is raucous rock and roll. Yeah. Okay, so then you start listening to, like, the Stones. Yeah, sure. Okay. Because sure. a lot of their stuff, you know, a lot of their earlier stuff was gritty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it wasn't meant to be moving. It was just meant to move so that you could move. Right. Then you listen to Jimi Hendrix, and his was, you know, kind of soul poetry and psychedelia, but, you know, it just was like, you know, you listen to... But what to did you gravitate first to in your writing abilities, though? Like, if you... Did you remember the first time you tried to write? Like, did you think blues? Did you think... First song I ever wrote end-to-end -end was a punk song. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Were you a fan of the Dead Kennedys at the time? Dead Kennedys. This is before the Dead Kennedys. Were you okay? This was like 75, 76. Yeah, okay. Yeah, where you're talking about Iggy Rose. and the Stooges, um, MC5, Blue Cheer. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, then, you know, then the Ramones came along, the Clash came along, the Sex Pistols came along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. Right. Yeah, music, man. I love it. I don't know how to play a lick of it. No, me neither, but I sure love listening to it. <laughs> yeah. I love listening to people that can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to come see one of your shows sometime. We are still, um, we're, we're, we've been without a drummer for a while now, uh, we, okay. so we're, we're still, we're doing acoustic gigs right now. Okay. Still cool. How's that working out? Works out fine. I mean, it's an easy gig. We've got a pretty compact setup to play acoustically, and basically we'll couple of days beforehand we'll just scratch out a list of like 50 songs and say okay does the audience like it equally as much as well it's a different context yeah that's what I'm saying like how's the, the bar audience probably, right? how's the draw with the acoustic well no see the, the thing is it, it depends on you know the, the thing is like a lot of the acoustic gigs we play are like private events mm -hmm. ah, okay. so the people are there for the event we're just kind of like the music to listen to while the cheese sweats <laughs> <laughs> you the background noise yeah that's right there you go that's good. Yeah, acoustic works better for that. Uh, true. <laughs> it's hard to talk over, true. you know, drums and yeah, playing right. clash. <laughs> yep. And so, um, you know, we we've done uh, stuff for like a friend's graduation party. Like one of my friends who's been cutting my hair since I moved out here. Her son was graduating from Harvard, and she was having his party at a 
a pub in Vista, and she, you know, they asked, could we play it acoustically? Right. Sure. And so we did that. And actually, the pub owner said, hey, you guys are good. You want to play here? And so we're like, okay. <laughs> That's so, awesome. It is then, awesome, yeah. And then, you know, uh, friends will ask us to play um, parties, things like that, acoustically, because they don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a friend of mine, she helps run a boutique in Encinitas, and they were having some big sale. And they're like, D- could you guys play that day? I'm like, okay. Nice. That's cool. So it sounds like you're not wanting for work. That's good. So uh, did you want to be a musician as your, as your yeah. career? Yeah. Like you wanted to be a rock star? Oh, good. When I was what, five, six years old, my mom was asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? A beetle. A beetle? <laughs> did you say which oh, one? There's only Ringo. One, of Ringo. <laughs> yeah. no, there's only one correct answer at that point. It's, it was John. John, yeah. Over Paul, huh? Of course. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So uh, when did, like, how how heavily did you pursue that? Did life just kind of happen to not, because you never did become a rock star. But well, you... I did, but in a smaller, more contained context. I was okay. a big fish in a small pond. Okay. Okay, so when I was getting out of high school, um, you know, I played in a, a cover band in high school. And this was still in Jersey? Yeah. Okay. Then after I graduated, I started hanging out with some different guys that, you know, a guy that I worked with played in, in a band, and he introduced me to some guys he played with, and they introduced me to some other guys. And so, you know, we started playing, we started writing some stuff, and it sounded, you know, it was sounding good, uh-huh. good 70s rock. And we, we played some shows, and then we got some interest by some management, and they're like, hey, would you guys want to do like a short tour? And I was like, yeah. So, of course, though, but I had a full scholarship waiting for me down at University of North Carolina, Greensboro, an academic scholarship. So this was like at the, toward the end of July, a few weeks before I'm supposed to go down to North Carolina. Okay. Like, Mom, looks like we're going to get management and we're going to tour. She's like, you're not going to tour. You're going to college. If you want to play in a band while you're in college, that's one thing. You're not going to give up a full scholarship. You need to, You need to just... You know, own that and get over it. And it's like, <laughs> all right. That was it? Yep. You didn't put up a fight? No. Okay. Sounds no. like she, uh, sounds like you knew uh, who was wearing the pants in that relationship for sure. Well, I, you know, the thing is, I did not want to, you know, I didn't want to, I was, myself and my older cousin were the only two ever went to college. Okay. So they were kind of like pinning, you know. Gotcha the hopes on us so it's like no well you know but the thing is too it's like yeah you know i can play in a band while i'm in college and you know yeah. jersey was just <laughs> it was jersey, so it was jersey. <laughs> all right so uh what did you what were you studying in college did you know right away what to study well oddly enough I, I had designs on being a music major theory and composition go figure and then um i get there and I'm in this like two week immersion before classes start and finding out what it's all about. I'm going, what are you guys going to do? I was talking to senior. What are you guys going to do when you get it? Oh, I'll probably go back to the town I grew up in and teach high school or something like that. And it's like, I need to make some better choices. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I became a business major before classes started, but I took music electives. Okay. Smart. And so, um, because, you know, some of my mom's colleagues, work colleagues, before I went to college, going, what are you going to major in music? I'm like, you know what, you should, you've got a good head on your shoulders, you're a smart guy, you should look into, you know, 
doing business courses. Were you entrepreneur? Did you have opportunity entrepreneurship in like high school? Did you have any business sense or any endeavors? Oh in yeah. Well, all right, expound. Uh, what, what, were you, what, was, what was going on in high school? Fireworks. Fireworks. Illegal fireworks. Um, they were legal in South Carolina okay. where they were purchased. Of course. <laughs> it's okay. The statute of limitations is long past. Yeah, you're good. You're good. No, no, that, no, that was that was my thing. Is like when I was a, when I was young, my cousins were older than me, and one uh, Easter vacation. You know, that they once they were old enough to drive, uh-huh. and, you know, my cousin had a van. They would just pile in the van. They'd go to Myrtle Beach for a week over Easter, and you know, I guess I, I can't remember. I was like ten or eleven. And they cornered me. They're like, "Got any money?" I'm like, well, "Yeah, I got some." You know, and they're like, "Okay, next week when you when you come over f- for Easter dinner, bring your money with you." I'm like, "Why?" They're like, "Trust us." I'm like, "Okay." So one thing you should know about me, my mantra for getting through life is, okay. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've heard like uh, motivational speakers saying something similar. So yeah, I'll buy it. And that's after receiving a PhD. (laughs) It still is, you know, but it's basically a growth mindset and being open to new experiences. That's Mm -hmm. what it means. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Don't rule things out. Okay. You know, I'll try anything once, twice if it really hurts. And so <laughs> that's why I'm in martial arts for the second time here. And so, um, so, um, so then Easter Sunday, they're like, how much money you got? I'm like, I don't know, $20. dollars like, good, give it to us. I'm like, why? They're like, trust us. You'll see. Wait till, wait till we get back from, from Easter vacation. So, you know, the week goes by, they come back the next Sunday, and, you know, we, we typically had Sunday dinner at my aunt's house where my grandmother was living at the okay. time because, you know, I came from this Italian family, so they were cooking all day. So they're like, come on up, we'll show you what we got with your 20 bucks. All right. So I go up into their room. Were you expecting, like, a porno mag or something? I don't know no what idea. I was expecting, right. you know, I'm like 11 years old, uh-huh. I was like, I don't know what my cousins okay. are going to get me, maybe a ferret or something. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure you're stoked, you're like, at least they didn't steal it from me. Yeah, you're yeah. like, they got me something. <laughs> no, I trusted them, I trusted them. You know, I thought, honestly, I thought they were going to get me, like, um, some some cool, illegal, like, weapon down in South Carolina, because they always had, like, my mom would not let me have BB guns, pellet guns, anything like that. So they always had that stuff. So I thought they were going to like get me some like cool pellet gun or something okay. like that. Or, you know, semi-automatic rifle or something. <laughs> like, and then just start a catch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so anyway. So, so I go to a room and they open up the closet and they give me this box. And they're like, open the box. Holy crap, that's a lot of fireworks. They're like, yeah. Down in South Carolina, $20 gets you a lot of fireworks. Oh, and they're shit. like, okay. Do you know what that box is? I'm like, yeah, that's a gross of M80s. Like, do you know how much they go for a piece? I'm like, I don't know, two, three bucks a piece. They're like, yeah, you know how much that gross cost? Four dollars. So I'm like, holy crap. They're like, ROI in full effect. Yeah. And so, you know, between so so the thing is, then, you know, people knew it's like, hey, the Pinto's got fireworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the good kind. Yeah, it's like Yup, I knew. And so, you know, that was my first entrepreneurial adventure. It Hustling. paid it paid for a few guitars. Nice. That's awesome. That's great. Hustling. Okay. And that was my side hustle, but I always, you know, did legit work too. You know, I always did um, 
gosh, I started working in a, our neighborhood was about three, four blocks away from like the industrial parks in the machine shops, things like that. Isn't everywhere in Jersey Pretty three, much. four blocks away from the industrial <laughs> Pretty parks? Pretty much. <laughs> and you know, we were what, what two, two miles from a Teledone isotopes right. plant too, so that's why <laughs> my right. pee still glows in the dark and you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, Homer. That's right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I took metal shop, you know, my freshman year of high school, and you know, one of the first things they teach you in shop class is how to break down and clean up all the machines. Sure. Because you had to clean, if, when you worked on a machine before class ended, you know, cl- I think they would end, like he would, he would ring a bell 10 minutes before right. class was over because you had to clean your machine before you could go. Right. And so I learned how to clean, you know, the drill presses, the lathes, the saws and everything. And so it's like, you know, I got this g- guitar for, for Christmas my freshman year and it was, eh. It was um, a Univox Les Paul copy, so it wasn't a real Gibson. Well, mind you, it looked like the one that Jimmy Page played, but it was, you know, this cheap Japanese copy. It was good, but it wasn't a Gibson Les Paul. I'm sorry. You know, it just wasn't. When you played it, you didn't feel like Jimmy Page. Oh, no. You feel like Jimmy Page. (laughs) I I felt like more like, um, I don't know. Jimmy (laughs) Swaggered. I don't know. But anyway... So you or Jimmy Stewart. But anyway, so um, so I knew that if you know, my mom's like, "Well, we got you the first one. You're on your own. From yeah, there. if you want more, <laughs> you got to figure that out." And this is the business sense. And so, okay. so, so the thing is, I started. I was like, "Oh, I know how to break down and, and clean these machines." There's tons of little shops. So there was like, there was this milling shop that did you know custom metal work, huh. and you know, so one uh, afternoon I rode my bike up. After playing basketball, and said, "Look, um, do you need anybody to do a, a good cleaning on the machines at the end of the week?" They're like, "What do you you know about these machines?" I'm like, "Yeah." So I was like, "Okay, if I if I come up here, like at you know four o'clock on Friday afternoon, I you know I can you know do everything for like an hour or two, and you know for like thirty bucks, because no one really you know those guys Smart. don't want to." And they're like, "You know about?" I said, "Pick a machine." Pick a machine, and you can watch me clean it. Make sure I know what I'm doing. Nice. If I know what I'm doing, you know, we can talk. If not, you know, I'll ride my bike away. And so that was another little side hustle Shit. I had. So you've always had work ethic. Oh, yeah. Was all of this motivated mostly for guitar oh, yeah. money? Okay. Okay. So we could bring it back. So you grew up doing a lot of blue-collar stuff and hustling in some way or another. So now we bring you back to college, yeah. business school. Oh, college. Well, the thing is, I got scholarships and grants, but I had to put myself through college. No family help? As in, well, you got. You said you got a scholarship. Did you say full ride or just a scholarship? Well, I got a full ride, but the thing is, part of that was work study. Mm, okay. So, in other words, you had to put in 20 hours a right. week, yeah. pay most of what you made back to the school, and so by the time, eh, I, I guess working 20 hours a week, I think it was uh, four or five bucks an hour, something like that back in the early 70s. Sure. And so you paid most of it, you paid like, there was a certain amount you, you had to pay back every month and then whatever you made over got in your pocket. So after paying the school, like, you know, my check would make maybe give me like 50, 60 bucks a month. Balling. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't, but that wasn't cutting it, you know. It's like I needed money, and so 
I started working um, catering because I worked in restaurants when I was in high school. Right. So I, I found, you know, some of my friends were working um, for a catering company. So in, in North Carolina, the big thing is like the High Point Furniture Market. They have it twice a year. Okay. It's kind of the equivalent of like, um, what's a good thing? Like the auto show. Except for furniture, okay. Yeah, gotcha. for, for furniture, okay. but it's like so. Basically, it's a big to do in High Point, and it's you know all these catered events and everything. They were looking for casual labor for. Now the thing is, because I, you know, it was just you know service. But the thing is, in North Carolina, when I moved there, there was no liquor by the drink. No liquor by the drink. Yeah. As in, you could only buy bottles? You, you could buy, it was BYOB. Okay. So you could buy wine, you could buy beer, and you could buy a setup. So let's say you wanted to have a rum and coke in a restaurant. Uh-huh. You couldn't order a rum and coke. You could bring your rum, and then you'd have to buy the glass of coke. Okay. Huh. Um, what? Yeah, you wanted to screw, okay. So, <laughs> that sounds like Utah almost. Yeah, and so the Did thing is. Did you help fix this business model for these yeah, restaurants? Really. I mean, that's No, dumb, no, but, 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 okay, but here's the thing. <laughs> So here's the thing, is that in in Guilford County, there was no liquor by the drink. So there really wasn't people that you could just hire in a catering service that knew how to mix drinks, that could bartend. Now, because I started working in restaurants when I was 16, and the drinking age for everything in Jersey was 18, (laughs) um, I hung out with the bartenders to learn, hey... How do you make a Harvey Wallbanger? Hey, how do you you know make an old fashioned? Blah blah blah. So I knew how to bartend, and so the thing is that they're like, you know, we really want to offer a full bar, but we don't have. It's like I don't have a ten bar. I'm like, well, how old are you? I'm like, you you know, well, I'm eighteen. They're like, well, we don't really need to know that. Can you mix drinks? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like w- w- I said, show me what you, you tell me what you want me to make you. And so the thing is, so because I could mix drinks. I got more catering work. That's awesome. Were you, yeah, and as the only bartender, you probably made decent tips. Well, there were, you know, a couple of older uh, guys. Uh, okay. But the thing is, you know, they could pay me, what, like six, seven bucks an hour to, to sling drinks. Right, and, sure. you know, the thing is, you know, when you're a college student and you get this gig to work for a week and you're, you're working 40 hours, you're making seven bucks an hour. You know, that's that's pretty good coin to have in, in you know supplement your work study and everything else. Right. I have a quick question. It's kind of an aside, but uh, was that decent money seven eight seven dollars an hour back then? Oh yeah. Okay. I just wondering because the minute federal minimum wage right now is like what seven eighty five an hour. So I just thought that was you know what's that? I bet you at 40 that time it was like a dollar. You know what? I can't remember. I think the you can you can Google it, but I think the minimum wage back then might have been I don't know four. Okay. I, it might have been less than that. I bet you it was less than that. I Probably guess. less than that, yeah. Especially, yeah. All right, so seven bucks an hour back then was pretty nice. Sweet. Yeah. So uh, did you find, so you you worked all through college. Did you find university hard? or was I mean, you, you obviously got a full I ride. I made it so harder on myself than it should have been. Uh, when it comes to just being busy all the time or because of actual schoolwork itself? Well, because my interests were weren't of the academic variety like my first year i think yeah that sounds pretty normal for a college student yeah. out in his own for the first time so, so um okay so <laughs> I, don't know you know, I, I don't know if you know um the replacements the, the band the replacements 
There, there's a song um, off the, Re- the Replacements um, EP, Stink. Uh, Paul Westerberg is one of my favorite writers. No, it, it's off of, um, I think it's Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. It's called... Um, it's a great name. Yeah, and it's it, the song is... Uh, <laughs> Dang it! Now it's gonna kill me that I can't remember the song. We can go. Uh, I, I hate music. I hate music. I hate music. And so, the, the, so the line he says is, "I hated my high school. Sometimes I went." <laughs> and so that kind of defines what my freshman year was like. Sometimes I went to class. Right. It's like I made the mistake of taking both micro and macro economics at 8 o'clock on Ooh. Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings. Brutal. And uh, I guess second semester, I was, t- you know, that was macro. And I think I went six times in a 16-week <laughs> semester, and my grade reflected that. First D I ever made in my life. And I was like, oh. Was it devastating? Oh, or did... hell yeah. It was <laughs> devastating. Did you know, and of course, your folks get your grades, yeah. and it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, well, how could you do this? It was pretty easy, you know. <laughs> there, you know, there's a lot of beer, there's a lot of parties, there's a lot of intramural sports. I was playing in a punk band, um, you know. There are a lot of other things to do. Sure. Okay, so you said being in high school, being a guitarist didn't get you laid. Did it get you laid in college? No. No. Okay. All right. Did you have lots of sex in college, though? Nope. Nope. Okay. I thought maybe you know chicks weren't into smarts back then, so that was no. I didn't lose my virginity until I was twenty-one. Ah, twenty-three for me, or twenty-two. So I I win. (laughs) I lose, I guess. (laughs) But you know the the thing is, like I said, I mean I, God, I weighed all of like maybe a hundred and fourteen pounds in college. Girls were not looking at me right that was back when it was tall strapping muscly that was all they were looking yeah, for frat boys and frat boys yeah mm-hmm. and douchebaggy frat boys and jocks that's yeah. that's who that's who got the ladies and so i kind of accepted my fate to just be you know so that you know the the the, the monicum is sex drugs and rock and roll so it's like eh, i guess i'm just gonna have to settle for drugs <laughs> for two and out of three for now. <laughs> yeah. like meatloaf said two out of three ain't bad right yeah right <laughs> all right so uh what drugs were you into or is this a topic we should skirt? Well, you know, I did recreational use back back when I was a kid. Like yeah, of course, a lot of, like a lot of kids did, but I stopped. I stopped all that pretty early on, yeah. just because you know I knew that it's like well, for, you know, everything was just so highly illegal. Yeah, and sure. the South it just cracked down on everything. And by the time my like my second semester of freshman year, I'm like, this is not not good. worth it. It's not worth it because um, there was a guy who got busted. That was, you know, a supplier, uh-huh. and they put him in jail for ten years. Damn. Damn. And so it's like, you know what? Was this just weed, or was it like harder stuff too? Well, he was selling harder stuff okay. too. But the thing is, it's like, you know what? Booze is fine. That's like the best years yeah. of your life. Yeah, for sure. Booze is fine, and yeah. um, but I stopped drinking when I was twenty-one. So it's like I did all. It's not fun after that. <laughs> and so yeah, so I just did all my all got my yayas out. You know, when I stopped drinking, you know, my friends were just starting, and so it's right. like. So what did you find fascinating in business school? Like what topics fascinated you in business school? Oh, anything that was um, applied mathematics. Mm-hmm. Applied mathematics, as in math in real world situations? Is that what you mean by applied mathematics? Um, like um, operations management, okay. uh, quantitative analysis for business econometrics, 
statistics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Especially statistics. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, you. Uh, you were very heavily into statistics in a lot of your work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. I thought statistics was really interesting, but I never really used it, so it's all gone out of my head. But I still think it's interesting. I definitely need to get back into that. Well, see, the thing is, when you get a PhD, you have to know statistics. Right. Because it's it's the grammar of research. Yeah, okay. Because it's 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 cross discipline. It's right. it's Makes any sense. dissertation where you have to, you know, and analyze data, you have to analyze it using statistical techniques. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, calculating the mean, it doesn't matter if it's in a, a you know, a biochemistry application or if it's in a marketing application, the mean is the mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody understands what that term is, how it is derived, and what it, it means as far as a measure of central tendency. So did that kind of stuff, you know, the applied mathematics, the statistics, did that kind of stuff grab you in the same way that music did? Yes. Yes, and um, the thing is I started out actually as a software developer. Okay. So let's see. This was, that was still pretty early oh, yeah. in software development, right? Oh, yeah. Um, my first... What, I, years was, what year was this? Um, my first IT class was 1979. Okay. And back then there was not a major in information technology. Um, the only programming classes that they had were in the mathematics department, and every business major had to take an intro to computers class. And that discipline back then was called business and distributive education. Okay. And so we learned how to um, program in basic, and we did a little bit of uh, Fortran in that class. Okay. And um, the first programs I wrote were on punch cards. <laughs> oh. And then, you know, on the, 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 the type terminal, where, you know, it, it was printing uh, readout of, oh gosh, it was just like a stack of paper, and then you so typed there it were, in. So there weren't monitors. This um, was, they they or... eventually got monitors, but they're all dial-in monitors. Huh. Dial-in monitors? Oh, dial-in. 300 baud, baby. I don't even know what that means. Is that like the uh, tiny little green screen with the dot that moves around? Okay, so it was just like a standard monitor, but it was just 80 characters across. Oh, yeah. 40 lines down, I believe. Oh, and... Um, your terminals were dialing. When I first started, we did not have our own computing system. We had, you know, we had to use the we shape. being the school. The school. Or, okay. The school. We had to dial into what was called Tuck Triangle University Center, wait, Triangle University Computing Center, and it was in Raleigh at NC State. Is this like the forerunner to the internet? You say dial in, as in dial in over a modem. Yeah. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah, and so when I say three hundred baud, yeah, that was the that speed. Makes, That's that the bits, bits per, per second. And so the thing is, Ooh. you had to use what was called an acoustic coupler, and literally, you dialed the phone number of, and you had to wait for that, and then you had to slam the receiver into the acoustic coupler, and it was just sending these beeps and everything, and that's how the data was transferred. It transferred it using sound? Yes. Sound Whoa! That's why it's called an acoustic <laughs> coupler. Holy shit, I had no idea that was a thing. That's awesome. An acoustic Also coupler. a great band name. Yeah, and so, it's so, so... And the thing is, you'd be typing away, and then you'd lose the signal, and you'd have to start over. And... Oh, shit. <laughs> Were you a patient man back then? You didn't have any choice but to be. <laughs> Man, and I get pissed off when my computer hangs for like 30 seconds. Or right. 
five well, seconds. And, and and so so the thing is, I took my first programming class. I'd never seen a computer prior to that. But it's like, oh, this is cool. I'll never forget one Friday afternoon, my my instructor, Dr. D. Batista, said, "Hey, before you go, uh, do you have a couple minutes to come up and talk to me in my office?" And it's like, that's never a good thing. On Friday <laughs> <afternoon>. <laughs> uh, there's there's really? typically never a joyful noise really? unto the Lord when that happens. Do they give so, out pink slips in college? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, and so I go up to his office. He says, oh, "Come in, ha- close the door, and have a seat." It's like, oh no. That's never good. Yeah. You started playing junior or what? It's <laughs> <laughs> so well, no, it was much much more positive experience than that. And so he he says, you know, you have an aptitude for this, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, I think it's cool and it's pretty easy for me. He goes, well, yeah. He goes, um, you know, we don't have an official degree program in this, but if you're interested in computer programming. And he just started to write down all these course numbers from, you know, the, the business department and uh, the math department. He goes, if you take these classes, you'll never have to worry about getting a job. Holy shit. So he kind of like made up a major for you out of all the classes available. Talk about the ultimate awesome. mentorship. Yeah, man. seriously. That's rad. And because he saw that. I could do this pretty yeah. easily. Sure. So he was sounds sure. like he was a really forward-thinking guy. Then. Oh yeah, he was awesome. Cool. And so I'm like, okay, again, <laughs> if you would have asked me when I was in high school, you're going to become a software developer. I'm like, a have what? You been, have you been smoking more than I have? This, you know, what, have you been smoking better stuff than we do? And, How soft is it? Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, um, so I. Um, I started to take the classes my sophomore year and, you know, was, was doing well in them. And then I guess, you know, so the, th- the thing is I was working landscaping at that time too. Easy job. In oh, South Carolina? North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina? Oh, no, no, dude. I was, landscaping anywhere sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, here's the thing though. I mean, see, and that's another thing about being open. Sure. Because again, I was looking for money. Right. And so when I came back to school my sophomore year, one of my good friends, he had been working for this landscaping company because it was, um, he was friends with the guy whose dad run it in his hometown of Reedsville, North Carolina. Okay. Well, the thing is, it was at Burlington Industries World Headquarters in Greensboro. Burlington Industries? Textiles. Okay. Big textile company. All right. So, it didn't start out as landscaping, but it was the landscaping uh, subcontractor. But, when they had to do department moves in the corporate building, uh-huh. they typically ask if he could get his guys to work on the weekend to move furniture, move file cabinets, okay. that kind mm, of stuff. Because yeah. he'd pay them well on the, for coming in on the weekends. Right. And there was a big departmental move, and he said to Dave, my friend, he said, hey, can you get some of your friends that might... You know, want to pick up a couple extra bucks to come in and work. All right. And Dave said, "Hey, you want to work this weekend?" Okay. <laughs> a recurring theme in your life. Yeah. And so, okay, so I, I go in, and it's like, okay, we're so we're moving furniture, we're moving file cabinets, brutal work for like 10, 12 hours, right? We do it all day Saturday. Then we have to show up again at seven o'clock Sunday morning. And um, so we get everything done, but then there's this dilemma. There's all these computer terminals. Now, at the time, 
my job work study was at the Academic Computing Center. Because as soon as I started my sophomore year, I decided I want to work in the computer center. Okay. And so I knew how to, because then we started to get um, our own stuff. We started to get our own terminals, and so you know I knew how to hook up terminals and that kind of. When thing. you say terminal, I mean were computers still gigantic at this oh, yeah. point, and the terminal was just an access point. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, there were there were no PCs at this time. Right. Okay. But I knew how to hook up a terminal because, like you know, we'd have terminals go bad in the lab, and you know students were working on them, so you'd have to swap out a terminal. Okay. And so there were literally several hundred computer terminals that had to be set up. Damn. And so the, the IT director is there, and he's like, well, we can't get anybody from IBM to come out on the weekend to set these up. And Ooh, I, and I said, um, <laughs> okay. I, 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 said, I, said, I said, can I see one of them? Yeah. And he said, well, sure. And I said, well, it's just powering coax, right? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, I can do that. I can show, you know, I can show some of the guys how to do it, too, and we can get these set up. He's like, really? Like, yeah, I, he goes. You know about these? I'm like, okay, give me one to set up. <laughs> I said as as long as I said as long as you know the the the, the infrastructure guys have all the connections right. live, yeah. they should work. And if not, we just need to make note that they need to come back and check that that cable. Yeah. He's like, well, okay, show me doing one. He, you know, and so he had the access to go. And he's like, okay. You know, can you get, you know, about four, you know, some guys to help you? I'm like, sure. So I showed some of my friends how to do it. So we got the, he's like, son, what is your name? And I told him my name. And he's like, when you get ready to graduate, look me up. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> Fuck yeah. And so, so this is in 79. This is, yeah, fall semester 79. So it was... Like October. And you were a sophomore, you Sophomore. Said? So this is like October of 79. Right. So then I took the classes, and then um, in o- a year later, in October of 80, um, the business building opened. You know, I was in the new academic computing center and everything. And so there was a, you know, like a just a flyer on one of the bulletin boards looking for part-time computer programmers, and they were paying 10 bucks an hour. Fuck yeah. Big money. Big money. Yeah. So, I mean, you do the math, that's 20K a year back in 1980, living in the South. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. You could buy a house for that much back then. Yeah, pretty much. So, I went in, interviewed, and so I got a part-time job as a software developer. And so that was my first... So, this is part-time paying 20K a year? Well, or that would be 10 bucks an hour. Okay, gotcha. 10 yeah, bucks an hour. So, full-time would be... Got it. Okay, yeah. Damn. And so... Money, you know that was great Cue money. The Pink Floyd, yeah. And, and so, and not so, moving furniture. That's right. Yeah, it's like not moving furniture. Okay, but the thing is, so that was that was the thing. But the thing is, then Dave's boss wanted me working, you know, for him all the time instead of just doing. It. So I started working for them, and it was landscaping. Uh. And so, you know, mind you, if it was raining, we would do stuff. They're snowing bad. We would do stuff inside, like move furniture, you know, do, do whatever they needed us to do. But when it's not, I mean, you're outside. I mean, for, I guess, almost a year. Damn. It didn't matter how hungover I was <laughs> on Saturday morning. I was riding a tractor cutting grass from 7 to 3 Damn. every Saturday. And, I mean, 
if you've never lived in the South in the summer. Thank God I have not. And, you know, you're sitting on a tractor, and at like 7 in the morning, it's already like 80-something degrees, 90% humidity. Then around 1, 2 o'clock, it's like triple digits, 90-something percent humidity, and finish up for the day. You're riding the tractor going, I have aptitude though. And <laughs> no, but the, but, the, but, but the thing is, I was, I was grateful because I learned how to do stuff that sure. most people, and I, yeah. now mind you, my stepdad taught me small engine repair. So the thing is, it's like, you know how to fix small engines? I'm like, well, sure. I do. Yes. And so I, you know, if, if one of the lawnmowers was down. You were MacGyver before MacGyver. Right? Yeah, basically. So I fixed the lawnmowers, fixed the chainsaws, fixed the weed eaters. Yeah. And I got to Big learn thing. how to drive the dump truck. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so when uh, Armageddon happens, I want to be in your party, in your survival party. I'm your Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I assume that that was a Walking Dead reference. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> no, but, but the but the but the thing is, I did every I did everything and anything. Yeah, sure. So is that more of your success and being the okay guy or the aptitude guy? What in your life? What brought you more success? Well, both. The the combination of yeah combination I mean, because the thing is, again, you have to be open. Sure. You have to have a mindset that, okay. You're going to have to do some landscaping if you want some money in your pocket. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, I have to learn how to drive a tractor. I've never mm-hmm. driven a freaking tractor in my life. I know we're talking a big yeah. industrial tractor with, you know, I, I guess it's like, like a backup. Like with a 10-foot wide, like, you know, Well, it's about, a, I guess, like a, like a five or six-foot wide. Okay. Um, not your regular motor. riding no, lawnmower. Not, not your little John Deere you tool around. Yeah. <laughs> and then one year, yeah, then it was this, the summer. You know, I've been working there since October. That summer, like just as school, uh, spring semester ended, okay, so the, the grounds had a bunch of junipers around the parking lot. Well, you're in the south. What's one of the big products? Tobacco. Everybody smoked, mm-hmm. right? We were having a drought. Some dude took a cigarette butt, threw it in the junipers, and they torched. torched. So we then had to remove all the fire-damaged junipers. And they're like, well, you know what? We, you know, they they had junipers all around the building itself, like next to the building. We need to pull all of them. We can't have that fire hazard. So for two weeks, we were pulling junipers. And if you don't know what that means for old growth junipers, you had to get the big heavy duty tractor, dig around the root bulb, wrap a big chain around it, hook the chain. Then you had to. Yank it out of the ground. Yank it out of the ground. You had to take a pickaxe, get the roots. (laughs) Then you had to chainsaw all this stuff up so that you could take it to the dump. Now, the thing is, if you've never been around a juniper, they're like sharp and bristly. And, you know, you get cut up really bad. So I had my mechanics overalls, and I knew how to use a chainsaw. I'm out there. 100 degree weather wearing mechanics overall gloves a mask and a chainsaw for two weeks and like some of this stuff was just like like burnt so it's like so you, you'd be you'd, you'd take a break and you're just like covered with soot oh man sweat and it's like and i mean i'd show up to class and everybody'd be like oh my god what's this what's that smell what are you a firefighter and it's like no <laughs> i want to be white collar so bad though yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, but that's what I, I mean, 
when we were doing that, I just started what my first session of summer school, my first statistics class, and it was you know from uh, a, uh, twelve to one thirty, I think three days a week. But I mean, I'd be walking in there literally with like my coveralls half on because I was just just sweating like a pig with like you know just a, a tank top T-shirt on. I'd just yeah. be covered in soot go be academic for an hour and a half and then go back and just start chainsawing stuff up for the next four hours. Holy shit. What a life. It sounds like balance. Yeah. We I mean, you'd exhaust, though, you'd exhaust yourself physically and then go exhaust yourself mentally. Yeah. You probably slept really well those oh, years. Oh, yeah. I slept good, had a great tan, and I was just like one solid muscle. Was it uh, overwhelming at the time? No. No? All right. Kept me out of trouble. Sure. For sure. Sure, sure. It it helped me change my focus. Sure. Let's let's go ahead to when you graduated. Did you go look up that guy that told you to when you graduated? Well, this is what happened. I had been oh, so so the first software company I worked for got sold. The guy who started the company found a buyer, uh-huh. sold, retired. So it's like oh okay. And so the the um, the office manager, her husband was an engineer and had a small business and so I went to work for him for oh gosh it wasn't that many months he had some challenges uh-huh. with his project sponsor and so I worked for him oh god less than a year oh yeah yeah and this is just like helping him start it up well I was writing a uh, code and um, helping him, he was building an automated sock knitting machine. Sock knitting? Yeah. So I was writing code like in assembly language, doing some Fortran, writing some basic program. I was writing project management software for him in basic. Ah. And so, you know, he, he and his uh, project sponsor had um, a difference of opinion of how he was spending the funds. Okay. So he had to let most of us go. Oh. And so that happened on a Friday. And it's like... Hmm. I guess I need to go find another, you know, software developer job. And so again, I mean, this is this is where you know the context for me looking for work in this environment. It's like this is what I did. So that weekend, I redid my resume. Now because I knew how to use computers, I used on the the the, the digital vax. There was a a script language that you used like dot commands that did all. It was a text formatter. Okay. And so it was kind of like HTML. I was going to say almost like CSS. Yeah, like a precursor to HTML. Okay. And so basically you could format your your document. So I was going to ask, there were no word processors at this point. Okay. (laughs) So I formatted my my resume. All right. Went uh, to the library, made a bunch of copies. And, um, you know, that Monday I went to my classes and, you know... You know, I, see, that's the thing. It's like I was one of the rare. I mean, I always wore a suit and tie to school because I was, you know, for, for a software developer. And so it's like, well, okay, I got to go look for a job this afternoon. Everybody's like, what do you mean go look for a job this afternoon? It's like, well, you know, I got, I got you know, we, a bunch of us got cut loose Friday, and then, you know, I got to get another job. They're like, how are you going to do that? I was like, well, ain't nothing to it but to go do ask, it. Yeah. And so the thing is, this is back in the day, I just took the phone book for those of you who've never seen a phone book. They're those pieces of garbage that you sometimes find yeah. by your front door. Yeah, yeah those those things you trip. Bags. Yeah, those, those things you trip over as you're getting out of your car some evenings yep. that left in your driveway. But anyway, I just got the phone book and I just went through and found you know any place that would have like 
a computer shop. So this was while you were still in school? Yeah. This is like senior year? Senior year. Okay. Senior year. This is October of senior year of college. So you had thrown in the blue collar work now that you were good enough to start doing some programming work yep. during college. Okay. Yep. And so um, I just drove around different places to see if anybody needed anybody help part time. And then um, the last stop, I found this this entry in there. It said business data services. And I was like, okay. So I, I walk in, my suit and tie, and I'm like, and there's nobody there but this this lady. Oh hi, how can I help you? I said, well, I was wondering if there was any openings potentially for computer programmers. She's like, what do you program in? I said, well, pretty much anything. She's like, can you program in COBOL? I'm like, well, sure. She's like, do you have a resume? I'm like, well, yeah. She's like, wait here for a minute. So she goes back into the offices, comes back up. She goes, you know, the owner will come, we'll see you, come back with me. And so he's just sitting there, just looking at my resume. He goes, so how long have you been programming COBOL? I'm like, two years. So um, what kind of work have you done in COBOL? And I told him, and he's like, Okay, can you start tomorrow? I'm like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. You bet your ass I can. But, but, but oh, yeah. that's the and thing. I saw some junipers outside. Of yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the junipers need to be pruned back. I can handle that too. I got my chainsaw and my, my gear in the, in the van. But, no, but the thing is, that's my context sure. of getting a job. It's just going out, pounding the pavement, and it's like, I will find work. Sure, sure. And so the, the thing is... You know, but it goes back to what Dr. D. Batista told me. If you learn, mm. if you take these courses and learn the material, you'll never have to worry about work. And, so, sounds, yeah. and so that's the thing is that even though I lost this job, and see, this is what happened my senior year, they found out that I'd been working off campus. Which was a no no? Well, yeah, they're like, we, we found out that you're, you're working as a software developer. You know, we, we can't fund you when you were making, like, this kind of money. <laughs> like, really? That's called double dipping, bro. And so they're like, well, we're going to have to, you know, pull your scholarship. Money. But they didn't, like, backcharge you or anything, right? No. Okay. But it's like, well, no, we're going to have to take away your, your scholarship. And so I was like, well, but the thing is. But you were pulling in software development money at this but, point. But the, here's the thing, though. This was University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Now, see, the thing is, I moved there after my sophomore year to oh. establish residency. Okay. So that I could get cheaper tuition. Rather so, than going back to your parents' home every, every yeah. break? Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, very smart. So, I only had to borrow 3000 to get through my senior year of college. That was, oh. that was the only student loan I had was for $3,000. Talk about your crippling homeowner, like by this time too? No. Okay. No, I was still in, still in, still yeah. in college. I, but I did buy my first house when I was 23. Damn. Right, pretty much, okay, after college. Year How much did it cost? $59,900. 1,200 square feet on three quarters of an acre. Jesus Christ. Right? $59,000 now won't even buy you most, car, most brand new cars. It depends. Yeah. Look up Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> I know where places are cheap enough, like they're cheap like that. There's a reason they're that cheap. <laughs> True, but, but anyway, that's crazy. but but the th but the thing is, having like this this like I said this mantra of okay, okay. Mm -hmm. is you know what I would tell anybody is that 
you typically, you know, there was a, a joke running around um, on Facebook. Some of my friends were saying about, well, geez, um, I'm glad there's an alpha, you know, there, the, there's, the alphabet's got 26 letters because I'm already in, like, you know, people talk about plan A and plan B. I'm already in plan F. I'm like, plan F? I'm in plan triple Z. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, but that's the thing, is that you really don't know where life is going to take you. Very true. And you don't know what skills you're going to actually need. Very true. To navigate life. So your suggestion is when the skill is offered, learn Take it. it. Yep, I'm going to I'm going to make a nerdy reference again, people. Life is an RPG. When you get offered some talent points, take that shit. When you get offered <laughs> some skill points, take that shit. Absolutely. Well, and here's the other thing to to consider. Okay, so you you've, you've taken math courses, right? You've taken statistics courses. Okay, so I I teach primarily those courses. And all my students are like, there's too many word problems. I hate the word problems. Why can't you just give me an equation to solve? I just, I, these word problems stink. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I can empathize with what you're feeling. But I'm going to clue you in on the biggest secret of life that no one has probably bothered to share with you. They're like, what is it? What is it? Life is one big word problem. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so think about that. Absolutely. You, you got kids, kid break, breaks their leg on the soccer field. No one's handing you a little three by five card that has the answer and it's solved. Okay? You're, you're working for a company and, okay, your, your, your manager comes to you and says, hey, we've launched four new products this year. We can only afford to keep one of them. Can you tell me which one it should be? No one's tapping you on the other shoulder and says, Here's the answer. <laughs> no, everything's a word problem. And what it means is that you're going to be given a crap load of information to digest. And most of it means nothing. Most of it's irrelevant. What you have to do is, is develop the skills to know what the meaningful information is so that you can make the right decisions to take the right actions. Excellent. And so the th and so the thing is, by being open to different things, you learn how to solve these word problems mm -hmm. in different contexts, in different mm -hmm. aspects of life. Mm -hmm. And that's what helps you navigate life. If you if you if you st if you stay closed off mm -hmm. and not open to learning something that is totally foreign, you might regret it. Expand your wheelhouse. Yeah. Always. always. And, but mind you, it's good to go deep on something. It's always good to have a speciality. But by having a framework, it always... Okay, I'll give you a perfect another example. Okay? So accounting and finance were probably the topics I loathed the most. <laughs> okay, Preston. <laughs> right? Yeah. I didn't load them at first. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I, ha I developed an aptitude for it. Now, mind you, undergrad, accounting and finance, you know, C's and B's was just not, you know, my thing. But when I got to my master's program, you know, the whole thing in the MBA program, a C was an F. Hmm. And you're only allowed three C's. And so I'm looking at my program, and it's like, 
I got to take two accounting courses and a finance class. I'm like, oh, You're like, oh there we go, my three C's. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. That, Allocated. <laughs> exactly. And it scared the bejesus out of me. And so what I did, it's like, okay, first session, of su- first year of summer school, I'm going to just knock out the two accounting courses because the way our summer school ran, it was two six-week sessions, three nights a week, two and a half hours per yep. night. So Monday, Tuesday, Thursday night, I'm just going to do accounting for two and a half hours. Yep. And so it's like if I'm going to get through it, being immersed in it, that's the way I'm going to go. So in my financial accounting class, I think I had a 97 average. Yeah. My managerial accounting class, I had, I think, a 98 average. And the funny thing is, managerial accounting final, studied for it. We get it, and it's it's all word problems. That's what managerial accounting is. So yeah, it's, yep. it's all word problems, and you got three hours. I got through it, and I look up, and I'd finished it in 40 minutes, and I started sweating bullets. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm looking at everybody, so it's like, you know, just angsting out over the problems, and I'm like, okay, I need to go back over my work. Yep. <laughs> Went back over it like three times, and I'm like, you know what? I have probably either just aced this or just totally booted the pooch on this one but there's nothing else I can do and so I turned it in and so um, our teacher said you know give me a self-addressed stamped envelope and I will send you your final grade before report cards come out well I got the envelope like three days later it's the first hundred percent I ever made as a college student was on my managerial accounting final in my MBA program my job. And so I was like, okay, I guess I can do this stuff. <laughs> and so the so point being is that, okay, I never thought I'd dabble in finance or accounting. As I started to work, you know, full time, oh yeah, we never circled back to the, I'm sorry, I, I derailed myself here. Welcome to a podcast. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, no, okay, sure. okay, okay, right okay, 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 we'll circle back, circle back. Okay, so... So you, you, you asked me about, did I ever get the guy who... Oh, yeah, the guy. Okay, okay, so, but anyway, so I had this job as a software developer my senior year, right? Well, at the end of senior year in April, Burlington Industries had on-campus interviews. I have to ask, is that any way related to Burlington Coat Factory? No. Okay. Totally different. Totally I had different. To, I thought that earlier, yeah. but I forgot to ask. Totally different. All right. But anyway, so I go to the on-campus interview, and there's the director of IT. He goes... Ross, how you doing? I'm like, pretty good. He goes, so, when do you want to start working for us? Oh, nice. Because he remembered me. Uh-huh. He, he saw my resume. He goes, wow, you've been you've actually been doing the work for a couple of years. I'm like, well, yeah, that's why you, you guys didn't see me on the landscaping crew anymore because I, you know, I found a job as a software developer. Yeah, sure. And so that, you know, the thing is, though, I got hired right in. So was that the first job you got where the company ended up getting sold? Or was that... Oh no, no that was it that part-time job that you for, part-time that was job for, for, okay. but but the thing is Burlington Industries uh, they were spinning off divisions left and right by the time I got there cuz like they had Burlington Hosiery and they sold that off mm-hmm. they had all kinds of stuff that they were spooling off huh. and unfortunately that was one of the roles I had in my tenure is that um, well because I had a background in statistics did you get to choose who got canned and what, what de- well, divisions got, got rid of? Okay, so let me preface this. Did they call you the Axe Man? Well, 
So this is what happened. Um, again, being open. Right. Right. So, uh, have you heard of this software package called SaaS? I know of software as a service, but I didn't know there was a software yep. package called SaaS. SaaS, it's statistical analysis system. It's been around for oh, ages. Oh, I've heard of it. I it's one of the big, big statistical software packages. Yeah. SaaS, SPSS. I see it on a lot of job requirements. Right. For, for, for data for science and, and yeah, statistics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the thing is, in college, um, we used SaaS very heavily. Okay. In the and I took crap loads of stats, econometrics, and all of our jobs were in SAS. All of our programming was in SAS. So I knew how to program SAS. So that would be the kind of program that researchers would use to write their papers with, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's data analytics. It's another one of those things that crosses all... Um, yep, all disciplines. All disciplines, yeah. And they're like, you know SAS, don't you? I'm like, of course. Yes, I do. Would you like to work on a project for us? And it's like... You know, it's like being force-fed a cookie. You know, a, a cookie in and of itself is a wonderful thing, but when someone's going, Rawr! it's like, Rawr! but it's like, well, you know, we've got this project going, and it's called Take the Workout. That's what they called it. Well, no subtlety there. And so basically what it was was going around to departments, looking at similar job roles, finding out how many hours it was taking to do certain tasks. This is reminding me of office space. Yeah. And so then they would do comparisons to see, okay, what are the least efficient departments? Uh -huh. Where do we eliminate? Okay. Okay, so I started working on that project when I was 24 years Ooh, old. Ooh, I bet they hated you. And so the thing is, I mean, okay, so I was 24, I don't know. I was just, you know, earn, earning bones, making, yeah. you know, making a name for myself, and I was doing all these great analytics, um, in, in making all this great analytic code in SAS and getting all these reports that were helping them make decisions. But you know, I had to go into departments and do intake work. Intake work. Meaning, you know, talk to the managers, find out who does gather what, when, gather assessment. data. Assessment. Gotcha. Well, it got to the point. By 1985, I'd walk into a department, people would start crying. Oh. Because they knew, oh, he's here. The Grim Reaper has come. So he's, you know, he's the take the workout guy. Once he comes, that means... And it started to get to me. I bet. And I'm like, I need another role. How long did you do this? About a year and a half. Okay. And is this what you did the entire time at that company? No, it was part. It was one of the big projects okay. I worked on okay. as a software developer, and it was because <laughs> I had this skill set <laughs> that I acquired right. that you wouldn't, you know, normally want. You know, normally wouldn't seek out. No one right. wants to. Typically, people don't want to do statistical analysis. People right. don't want to learn it. But it's like, oh, oh, yeah, I love this stuff. Yeah. And so I knew how to use this piece of software and be able to operationalize what the results were into business decisions. And so I know I need a different role. So I started to, um, I actually took a demotion and a pay cut to get out of the role. Worth it. Was it worth it? Do you feel like it was worth it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, I, for me, just living vicariously <laughs> through your past, that was totally worth it. <laughs> and so I got on to another team. They're like, you've worked on PCs before, right? And so the thing is, I started working on VisiCalc on Apple 3s okay. in 1983. 
the so first software, first spreadsheet software package. When were PC? When did PCs become um, commercially viable? Eighty-two. Okay, so these were brand new. And so I started to learn how to use the PCs, but you know, a lot of what I was doing was still on the the Apple. But I started to learn DOS. Started to learn. Um, how to use the PCs because of different um, software that came in house. And was it IBM that did the first PCs, mm -hmm. and then Apple followed up, or like no, copied no, them? No, no, or... no, actually, Apple was first. Ah, okay. But IBM became the first corporately viable. Got it. Okay. Machine. Okay. Got it. So I, I was working on an Apple three because I was the only one who knew basic code right. on an Apple. They're like, do you think you could support this system for our expatriate payroll? I'm like, okay. And so I did. But then they say, oh, you know PCs. Do you know how to use the IBM PC? And it's like, I've monkeyed around with it some, but y'all learn some of the stuff. But anyway, so I got put on this team. And they're like, you know about databases, right? I'm like, yeah. Okay, I was going to ask, um, were relational databases around at this point? Yes. Okay. And so they're like, you know about relational databases. Okay. I'm like, Yes. They're like, okay. When did that come up in your studies? You haven't specifically talked about that. Well, see, um, relational databases didn't really come... Uh, it, COBOL 2. Oh, really? COBOL 2. Is that, uh, was that used for database querying type things or like for... Well, see, the thing is... Okay, so our school didn't have the relational databases. Right. Okay. But... In the course, the advanced COBOL course, uh -huh. we learned about relational databases. Okay. Okay. It was just a fledgling thing back then. But okay. then, once I got into, um, you know, my corporate job at, um, at at Burlington Industries, we started to get the fledglings of using relational databases okay. on the mainframe. Just uh, real quick, for the listeners who aren't sure what a relational database is, the most commonly known relational database it would be SQL. So think SQL databases, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. The, the precursors, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. And so they said, okay, well, there's this new software that came out. We want you to, to learn for these projects. It was called DBase3. Hmm. So like the evolution was DBase3, DBase4, and then there was... Fox Pro, and then, you know, eventually there was, um, you know, Microsoft Access. Mm -hmm. But DBase 3 was a, a DOS version, prompt-level commands, precursor to Access. Prompt-level meaning all you have is a cursor that's like, broken and you type in your commands like, like one Like Linux or Unix. Yep, yep, yep. And so I learned how to use this software to write some very cool... Oh yeah, things, I bet you were having cool applications. At one time, I had three offices in Burlington Industries World Headquarters. Damn, because I was doing work for the um, industrial engineers. I was doing work in IT, and then I had the computer lab down in the basement that no one had access to except there's three of us. Oh yeah, I guess you couldn't undock your IBM PC and take it to your other office. No, but, could but you? the thing is, but the thing is, I couldn't talk about what I was working on. Oh, uh, sure. And so to the other departments to, sure. to anybody, uh, uh, uh. and because it was pretty proprietary stuff we were getting okay. ready to do. But the thing is, the lab was a um, a it had been a Vax um, machine room, which basically was you know mini computers, but pretty large mini computers. But anyway. So if you've never been in a computer operating center where there's a lot of servers, there's very, very strong, heavy-duty industrial air conditioning right. to keep everything cool. Well, 
when all the computers are there, it feels like normal room temperature. Right. When you're the only one in there with one PC, a printer, and one of the floor raised floor tiles is not there and the AC is running, it's like working in the Arctic. <laughs> it's like working in a walk-in freezer. Yeah, exactly. It's like walking into a walk. So the thing is, so I was doing this work and you know they gave me the lab at the start of the summer. And so it would be 90-something degrees outside, and I'd be going in with my suit jacket on, and I'd, be, I'd have to come up for breaks because my hands mm-hmm. were freezing, and I'd have my tie pulled up. I'd have my, my suit jacket on. They're like, damn. I was picturing you in, like, a parka, like, well, well, the thing is, gear. Well, the thing is, I started, after doing that for two weeks, it's like, i got to bring in a coat. Right. And it's like, it's in the middle of June, and I'm bringing a winter coat. They're like, do you have, like, like the plague or something? Why are you bringing a winter coat into work? It's confidential. And so the, but the, yeah, exactly. But the thing is, I'd be sitting there at my workstation. And the the floor tile that was missing was to the left of my desk. I swear to you, I could take when the air conditioning kicked on, I could take a piece of paper, hold it over that hole in the floor, and let it go, and it would hit the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, well, at least I don't get hot during the summer. Well, Dr. He, Dr. Ross is committed to his job, man. Think of all the calories you were burning as your right. body straining oh to my keep God. you alive. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, um, so... So when you look at jobs and you say work environment, you're like, not a problem. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's like, again, I've ridden a tractor. I've, I've, I've been in Arctic conditions doing software development. <laughs> Can't phase this. Okay, and fair enough. But the, but the thing is, I could see the handwriting on the wall because they were divesting all these divisions. All the divisions. Yeah. And the thing is, okay, so going back to accounting and finance, so I was doing project budgets, and then I'd see, you know, okay, this is how this, you know, you know I'd consolidate them, and I was like, oh, our, our capital funding is yep. drying up, drying up. And so you were doing these budget analyses with your statistical analysis software, or you were doing this in addition to all the statistical? Oh, in, ad- in addition uh, to this everything. is another project. Oh, well, okay. yeah, this is in addition to okay. everything else. Yeah. Um, we we wanted to have a well, and so I used, you know, we used DBase for other projects, but then I also used it to do project accounting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that we could see how much we're spending, and that we could, could roll right. everything up pretty easily without having to do a bunch of work on the mainframe. <clears throat> and I could see the handwriting on the wall. But I, and so it's like I looked for another job, found another job. But, but then, when I was getting, when I gave my notice, everybody wanted my job because I had this really cool job. And I'm like, be careful, be careful. what you wish for. Right. And right. so when I left. Person, you know, got my job, and within six months, the position was eliminated. Yeah. Mm. How long did the company, was the company on its way out, or were they just severely cutting Well, you know, they, they started do, cutting things left and right, and I think there's, it's still around in a very, very small context. Mm. Very small context. Because they had manufacturing plants, you know, all over the South, and that, one of the projects I worked mm. on, Manufacturing things that are now super cheaply made in Asia. Well, yeah, that was the whole thing. Back yeah. in the early 80s <laughs> is well, when we, we started to hit the uh, globalization challenges right. with the Far East market 
you know, starting to offer clothing and textile products much cheaper than what we could make in America. Gotcha. And so, but the, one of the last projects I work on, again, was um, we were going to install PC, some of the first PC networks in the plants to help them do maintenance management and, mm -hmm. and um, stuff on the, the factory floor. And so we had to go around to every type of plant that we had. And that was really interesting. Oh, I bet. Okay, so I got a funny story about blended wool. Okay. Because, you know, we had fabrics, right? Sure. Right. So we made fabrics. We made denim. Um, right. We were a big supplier of denim to, like, uh, Levi Strauss and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we had, like, all these... You know, really nice um, suit fabrics and things like that. So blended wool fabrics. Okay. And so we went to the, the one of the wool plants to, to see how they did things. So the first thing that strikes you when you go to a wool processing plant is okay. So it's, it's all the sheep. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, it's cool, <laughs> but basically, no, it's the trucks come in with just like these bales of sheep wool. Okay. And okay, that's bad enough as far as the smell. Oh yeah. So they're okay. so they're walking us through because they have to process the wool, and they're like, okay, so we're going to show you the lanolin recovery area. Okay, do you know what lanolin is? No. Okay, you've you've seen it in cosmetics, and it's used in cosmetics. It's used in like lotions and creams and stuff. Okay. Lanolin is basically sheep sweat. Ew. It's the stuff that the sheep excrete, and it gets in the wool. But it's like this oily stuff. Just like imagine if you had oily skin. Sure. I absolutely sure. have that. Okay? Yeah. And you know how it gets in your hair, gets mm -hmm. in your beard. Well, yeah. okay, we shampoo, right? Right. Sheep don't shampoo typically. Yeah. So this sheep sweat, the lanolin, collects in their wool. Well, you can't use the wool unless the lanolin, unless you know it's been washed. Exactly. Yeah. So the lanolin recovery area. Got it. They're boiling the wool. And the God. stuff that oh. comes up, it's just like this trough of, looks like diarrhea and oh smells God. worse than it. But the thing is, <laughs> there's no loss in the process. They would sell the lanolin to, you know, beauty supply. To company. Maybelline. To Maybelline. To, to yeah. you know. Smart. It is. Smart. Okay, so, okay, so that was part of it. And they're like, okay, let's show you the wool blending area. It's like, oh, they're going to show us how they blend wool. This should be, it's science, man. <laughs> well, they take us out to these big barns that have just like these big wire cages. And there's these things that just look like huge ceiling fans with these big heavy-duty blades. They're like, okay, we're going to be blending three types of wool. So basically, they just shoot out the three types of wool out, you know, it's through these pneumatic shafts, and the big fan just goes and just like what just, the fuck? And just fills up the the thing. It's like, oh, I guess wool blending is not as technical as I thought it was. <laughs> I was actually a gonna make a blender. yeah, I was yeah. gonna make a joke about a blender, but yeah, okay. it's kind of kind of like yeah, like, like a ninja for wool. That's it. Yeah, Damn. <laughs> Holy shit! All right. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't sound technical at all. All right. Yeah, yeah it's not so technical. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow, okay. Your career is taking you in so many different directions. And, but again, the thing is, I know all this this useful and useless information, sure. but it's like, so that leads me trying to get back on the path here of accounting okay. and finance. Sure. But I learned how to do 
project. Again. You learn how to do everything, it sounds like. Yeah. And I, I learned how to manage budgets. Right. And so the thing is, then over the years, as I took other roles, I had bigger project budgets to manage, you know, doing infrastructure projects like, okay, we're going to install a new network in this, this, um, this office building. Did you enjoy the trend? Did you like the transition from software development into more of a finance role, or were you in the, well, the whole time? Were you kind of wishing you could stay as a developer? Well, see, here's the thing: I still write code. I always write code okay. in some form. The thing that got me okay. The reason why I got my MBA uh-huh. was, you know, I was a good software developer, but I was put on a team where I had to be on twenty four hour call. Ooh, fuck that! Mm-hmm. And this is back in the days. When it was key punch, mm. still crap load. I mean, everything was. Everybody didn't have data terminals, mm-hmm. and so like for the engineering projects out in the plants, they still were filling out weekly reports with data on forms, and we had a key punch department that would get the forms and key punch the information in, and then it was fed into the system in batches. So a key punch is kind of like a disk. Mm-hmm. It was how the computer input in, into well, basically, yeah. Right? So basically, it was spl- It's like the equivalent you'd have these days is typing all the data into an Excel spreadsheet, right? And then feeding it up to a, a, a database application. Okay. Feeding it, um, feeding it to a Python application. So the data wasn't stored on the punch cards it was just used to translate it into the computer so well by then the we moved from punch cards but it was spooled to a tape okay all right oh yeah i remember tape tape drives spooled to a tape and then the tape was your transaction file that then got merged in with all the other data okay got well it. the thing is if the key punch up op- a lot of times the key punch operators if they didn't like if data was missing they didn't ask questions mm. they would just move the data over now the thing is cobol programs were not forgiving if you had like if 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 the COBOL program definition for like this 80 column record uh-huh. if in if in if in positions one through ten it was supposed to be a number and you had characters yeah the program would blow up and there weren't any helpful error windows wow. no it was it was what <laughs> was called a core dump okay and so oh, what a core that dump, sounds impressive okay yeah. what that means yeah. is that Basically, when the program fails, the core dump tells you every piece of information that is sitting in every memory position Holy shit. when the program fails. Mm-hmm. And then you had to learn how to read the core dump, yeah. match it against what your program was doing, so you could trace where it went wrong. God. Holy shit. And so... Okay, so I was on 24-hour call, and so a lot of times I'd get called in, it was just something minor. Well, this time, it just like blew up to holy hell. I had just gotten home from work. An hour later, I got called in, and I was there till 3 in the morning. Now, the thing is, my boss thought she knew more than I did. Of course, as they do. And so she was digging in. I'm like, Carol, I don't think that's the answer. And she was blaming the code, blaming the code. Well, you modified this code. I'm like, Carol, that has nothing to do with what's going on here. No, 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 no. So all day Saturday, she was like, and I'm like, no, that's not it. And I said, you need to just let me wrangle this. 
And then I looked at it and I figured it out. A key punch operator, there was a field, a numeric field that they had left blank on the entry form. Uh-huh. And it was supposed to be numeric. Okay. The key punch operator shifted a word into that. Okay. And so it threw the whole thing off. The core was, exp- uh, the, the program was expecting four numbers there to do math. Right. And it had a word. So it all blew up. And I'm like, this record needs to be fixed. Just move that and boom. But and the, the boss hit you ever since. That <laughs> happened at nine o'clock on Sunday night, and like Saturday night, I got like maybe three hours sleep, and Jesus. it's like, no, I don't want to be a software. So you're like, okay, I'm over it. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, I got to go to grad school. And yeah. that was when you transitioned into finance, well, more finance and accounting more. Well, well, basically, it's yeah. When I ch- well I changed into being. Um, into being quant jock. A what? Quant jock. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I... Quantitative my, analysis? Yeah. So, the thing is, my degree program, um, master's degree, was, was quantitative methods. But I was really good in accounting and finance. Right. And then, you know, eventually from managing larger project budgets, there was an opportunity. Right. When I worked in Greensboro, there was an opportunity to transfer out here to San Diego. Okay. And were you ready to go? Well, this is what happened. Um, a guy who I had done work with in Greensboro, you know, I was coming, I started coming out here on business in June of 94. Okay. And was this related to your current job at that time or yeah. was it? Okay. okay. Yeah. And so I was an IT infrastructure manager. Okay. So we were just putting in networks. 94. Okay. We're just, like, we had PCs that were operating independently. Then I I had them set up windows for work groups. Let's see, 94. Was that still 3.1 or had Windows 95 come out at that point? I know it's 95, but you know how... No, it's still Windows it still 3.1. 3, 3, 3. Oh, the good old days. And so, but there was also Windows NT. Oh, yeah, I never really and used so that And so that was the server platform. Right, but yeah. then I made the push to get everybody to have NT Workstation because it was a far more stable platform. Because if you remember... Windows ran on top of DOS. Yes, I do remember that. But Windows NT, the kernel was the operating system. Oh. So it was a much more efficient platform, plus it was secure. Right, because command prompts are notoriously hackable. Yeah, so the thing is Windows NT, it booted up and it required access, username, and password to even log into the machine. Right, okay. So I wanted to harden the system. Smart. Very smart. So... So I was coming out here because I designed the network architecture of how things were going to work, what, you know, what the servers were, how everything right. was. So I started to come out here and you know, you know, made relationships with the people in the office. And the guy who I'd worked with in Greensboro was the campus director out here. Okay. And you know, after I'd come out here a few times, I'm like, hey, if there's ever any an oppor- ever an opportunity to work out here, I'd, I'd really love to come out. So here. you were a fan. Absolutely. So that that I started to put that seed very nice out there in '95. Well, I had just come back from a month long hitch in Brussels because we had a campus in Brussels, and I was putting in network infrastructure in Brussels, and it took much longer. I mean, it, that's back when Belgicon. I mean, that was your sole provider, and if they said. It's two weeks. You need to schedule yourself for four, okay? Because nothing happens, you know, on time. Right. So I had just come back from a, about a month in Brussels. It was um, 
So I, I, I had Thanksgiving week off and took the week off after. It was like the first week of December. I'm back in my office, and they were doing some year-end meetings. And so uh, the San Diego campus director was for here for the meetings, and he comes to my office to close the door and sits down. He goes, so when do you want to start working in San Diego? Nice. Like, yeah. And I'm like, oh. And I was like, I don't know. When do you want me to start? How about in January? I'm like, <laughs> What do I say? <laughs> okay. Okay. There you go. Okay, shrug. Okay. Okay, what's the role? Well, you'd be the, the, the manager of planning and systems. Oh. Okay. Systems part, I get. What's planning? Uh, right, right, right. I, I, I said, you tell me, what is your context for planning? It goes, well, you know, in addition to the IT work, you're the campus financial director. I'm like, oh. Okay. Hmm. I guess uh, I need to start learning what that means. And so, but the thing is, then I managed like a, a $2 million operating budget. And so that's when I started to really dig into, you know, the analytics of the campus finances and how things were. Sure. Things like right, yeah. sure. You know, over the course of th- that role, I, I got to do a lot of cool stuff, uh, branching out into doing research and, and things of that nature got an interest in the behavioral science, social behavioral sciences, which is where I eventually got my, my PhD work in. But, you know, I got laid off from there in 2004. Okay. I had consulting work. And then um, I, again, one day it's like, you know, this is my first experience like applying online for jobs. <clears throat> and I'm like, this is for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> And so, what do I do? I get my resume. Where's the phone book? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so, I printed out my resume, and I went to Robert Half and Associates, sure. and I showed up at their door. Sure. And I said, here's my resume. And they're like, oh, what do you know about static pool analysis? Hmm. I'm like, well, static pool analysis is basically mortality studies on um, loan portfolios. What do you mean by mortality studies? I'm like, well, that's from biostatistics and, um, you know, medical statistics. You know, all static pool I always analysis. wondered what static pool meant. I never really knew. Well, static pool means that the cohort group doesn't change. Oh. It's static. Makes sense. It's, it's like, okay, so you'll... Unlike in, operational data, which is constantly changing. Right. So in, in other words, so like, if, for example, in static pool analysis, you'll hear the pools of loans talked about in vintages like wine yeah I've heard, I've heard that talked about yeah okay so like wine if you if you buy a vintage 1960 when was it made 1960 doesn't change right you can buy the bottle of wine in 2020 you can buy it in 2040 the vintage doesn't change when it was made doesn't change right well in loan portfolios the vintage is when did the loan originate right that never changes okay gotcha yeah. if you if you took that mortgage out in June of 2010, doesn't matter. I mean, that's the vintage of that loan. Right. Okay. Yep. Okay. And so the thing is, in um, biostats, in medical studies, when you're talking about mortality studies, they use cohorts, and that's when like a person entered a clinical trial. That's the cohort group. Okay. And so in mortality studies, you're looking like like for cancer treatment drugs. You're looking at, okay, when did the person start taking the drug? How many periods, you know, and then you just start to see, okay, what's your mortality rates? 
Okay, okay. so let's say 100 people started the study. Right. Okay, one year later, okay, we're down to 93. Two years later, we're down to 70-something. So you're looking so, at... year vintage X, you know, the mortality rate for the first year is 7, the mortality rate right. for the next year. Okay. So same thing with... Okay, makes sense. With loan... So the thing is, in clinical trials, you're looking at, okay, what's the survival rate? Right. When... Does it really start getting, well, the same thing in loan portfolio analysis. And death in this case would be default. Exactly. Death is default. And so you saw my my curves. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a definite place between a certain number of quarters when that's the most likely time for the mortality to occur on the loan. And so the thing is, again, because I was open to, to doing all this... Okay, when I worked in the tobacco industry, I did lab rec research. Mm. That's when I learned about all this stuff. Okay. But I was like, oh, wait a minute. This, this, you can apply all these bio, te- bio um, statistical techniques in loans. No one was doing that. Mm. And so they're like, so what do you know about static pool analysis? I'm like, oh, this, 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 this. And they're like, well, we have a client. It would be a three-month assignment to, do static pool, to, to develop a static pool model for them. Do you think you could do that? What do I say? Okay. 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 There you go, so, man. and you decided to go back to North Carolina. I'm assuming. Well, <laughs> that's a no. <laughs> For those of you who can't see his face, that's a definite no. <laughs> and, and so, what, and so, what happened was, um, uh, how to say it? So, I, I took this gig. 90-day gig, yeah. and after two weeks, you know, because I started to, you know, look at reporting, blah blah blah, I'm like. So do you want to be our director of finance? <laughs> what do I say? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Only for 90 days though, right? No, but, but I, I, I took, awesome. I took yeah, the awesome. role. Within two weeks they've offered that. Yeah. That's and so the, so the thing oh, yeah. is, that's amazing. so it's like, okay, so now I have to learn. Yeah. X, y, and and again, you would have asked me in high school, I want to be a rock star. Yeah. You're the director of finance, and your daily duties are finance and accounting. He gave up on life itself. But it's like, again, it's like, okay, I'm going to learn stuff I've never sure. done before. Sure. And I'm going to be good at it. Yeah. That, that's the thing is, it's like, I don't do anything half-assed. You mm-hmm. can't go through life half-assed. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do something, do it. Yep. It's, it's well, you know, the old Yoda adage, there is no try. There's only do or do not. Right? Yes. True. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no sense in half-assing anything. Good, re- good reference. Because yeah. you're just wasting your time. Sure. Yeah. All right. So that was, that was a, okay. Pretty. Episode. Yeah. No, that was good. I was, no, <laughs> I was gonna say that was a that was a brief uh, history of Dr. Ross's life. Um, very interesting life. You basically just moved from one topic or skill to the next and they all seem to somehow be interconnected which you know that's life right that's life everything's connected yeah so that's excellent but the but the thing is it's all about a growth mindset Mm -hmm. yep it's about you know the thing is you can't be afraid to get your hands dirty okay you can't be afraid of hard work okay so my middle name is Martin. Okay, so if you're every good and bad Catholic boy has two middle names. Okay, so mine is Martin, which was given to me, and then Matthew is the one I took at confirmation. But Martin, you know, there was this famous Saint Martin who was like this warrior, and I'm like, Mom, is that who my patron saint is? She's like, No, 
your patron saint is St. Martin de Poor. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? And so I looked it up, and he is the patron saint of work. Oh. And, you know, the thing is, his... The thing, like, if you look at his, like, um, they all have, like, a crest or some symbol in the Catholic Church. They're basically the Catholic version of Greek gods. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, so his, like, for example, I think it's uh, St. George or whatever had, like, the the shield and the sword. Well, St. Martin de Poor thing was a broom. (laughs) But here's the context for that. The context for him was all work. Is sacred. Hmm. That sounds like a Japanese type mentality. Oh, it was way before that. But the thing yeah. is, but but the thing is, you have to think about that context. Hmm. And you know that's why I'm never afraid to oh, unclog a toilet. Sacred. You know, I I you know paint stuff. I mean, I, again, I have done just about anything. You. Would or would not want to do. But the thing is, when I say all work is sacred, think about in the context of somebody who hasn't had work in years. Work is sacred. All work is sacred. Because it gives you purpose. It gives you the opportunity to learn something every day. It gives you the opportunity to, contri- to contribute. It gives you the opportunity to make a difference. You know, you, you might look down at somebody who's cleaning toilets but guess what those toilets weren't clean you know there's there's consequences for that if those toilets weren't clean that would be shitty <laughs> sorry i had to <laughs> no but still but literally it really would but still i mean the thing is when you look at that toilet and it's clean you're thankful right oh absolutely sure, sure. and so therefore you are thankful for the work that somebody did sure yeah. definitely yeah I've sat down on a disgusting toilet and definitely did not like it. So, absolutely understand <laughs> that. First hand account. Yeah. But it's a, but that is the the thing, you know, that So you've always found a sense of purpose in work. Absolutely. And the thing is, I've gone up in salary. I've taken big salary cuts. But, you know, the th- the thing is you have to be open can't think that something's beneath you just because it's not exactly what you want. Mm. That's good. That's good advice. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I wanted to be a rock star and play at Madison Square Garden. Well, you know what? Playing clubs up and down the East Coast was pretty cool, too. Yeah. It's probably a lot less stressful, too. No, maybe more stressful. I don't know. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. But, you know, and, and that's the thing, is that your, your context should always be what... It, it, what can I learn from this experience? Ah, I like that a lot. Yeah, sounds good. All right, I think uh, with that note. Well, let me let me just okay. throw one more one more one, one more, more bit quote. of wisdom. All right. So, the okay. So my whole doctoral work was in um, adult learning in the workplace, and so I came across this quote when I was having writer's block trying to write the, the, the first chapter of my dissertation, which is the introduction. The introduction right. And so it, it always resonated with me. And it is, in time of profound change, the learners shall inherit the earth, ah. while the learned will find themselves beautifully equipped to address a world that no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is Al Rogers. That is brilliant. But the thing, but so that's the thing, is that what you know 
may have gotten you where you are, but it doesn't mean it's going to carry you the rest of the way. Good words. Good words. Excellent. All right. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Ross. That was some excellent words of wisdom to close with. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you all later.